you're really young. Like now I've been outside of uni for six to seven years and yeah, taking that risk early on, I, I think is if you're going to do it, you should do it then. Hello and welcome to Graduate Theory. My guest today is a serial entrepreneur who recently raised a 650k pre-seed round to work on a Web3 startup that he co-founded called Vinky. He was previously the first employee and head of growth at SmarterMail, where he scaled the team to $2 million of annual revenue and 20 plus employees. He's originally from Canada. Please welcome Josh Reyes. Thanks for having me, James. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having. It's, it's great to have you on, mate. It's um, you know, exciting news. Yesterday, your your pre seed round got uh, announced. So, congratulations to yourself and and congratulations to the team that's involved. It's a it's a big milestone. So well done. Yeah, it's it's been great. It's been great to finally get the news out there. Um, we closed it back in December. So yeah, having a lot. The congrats is always nice, and to have people really excited about what we're building and to be to go and podcasts like yours it's awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely no it's great to have you on and you've certainly had a an interesting career and, and one that's I'm, I'm keen to dive in to some of this with you the first question i have for you so like i said in the intro you worked at smarter mail and you were the first employee there right that is somewhat unusual especially at that time you were kind of early on in your career i think it may have even been your first job <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong yeah. but you know you're joining as the first employee what was your rationale for doing that and how did that come about? Yeah, it's probably different from a lot of people that would get into that role. So I I studied finance back in uni and in my last few semesters, I was trying to find internships and looking for jobs. And I'd always thought like, oh, I really like finance, the topic. I really like the subject matter. And that just seemed like the natural conclusion of what I'd work in. And I just found like it didn't suit me from like a cultural level in terms of what I believed like work should be. And I was also, I also grew up and studied in Vancouver, which if you're looking for a finance role, not being a finance hub like New York or Toronto had limited roles and it was a lot more cutthroat with less opportunity. And so I had a few <laughs> friends in graduate roles that were working in tech instead, and they all seemed really happy. They didn't have super crazy hours and they seemed fulfilled in what they were doing and they seemed to be working on really exciting problems. And I was like, hey, I need to do that. My finance skill set didn't really match. So in my last semester or so of uni and then just in my free time, I taught myself marketing kind of from like a performance marketing and technical perspective and was able to get my first internship which was helping actually a Shopify store build a custom app called, it was called Make. Uh, this, it was a store in Vancouver and they had a custom app so you could print on t-shirts like my own here or you could print on tote bags and things like that. And you could bring a design hey. in and upload it or you could just upload it online. So I had a bit of experience working with Shopify and their APIs and like building apps on it. I, that was more like marketing and a little bit of product management, just like reporting bugs and things. But I'd understood how Shopify worked and how, I guess, how APIs worked and how to just had a market for an e-commerce store, really. Um, so I moved to Australia from Canada and my rationale was to actually think I, I want something stable, which doesn't really make sense going to <laughs> in an early stage startup, but I wanted something that I could pick up quickly. And I thought like, 
if I go into a startup that I have known nothing about, there might be a good chance I get fired. But if I go into something where I really understand the problem that um, they're trying to solve, and I guess the software um, and the tech stack that it's being built on, I can really hit the ground running and make an impact. So mm. I joined SmartML as actually an intern, but the first employee who hadn't raised any money, had essentially zero users. And yeah, over three months, scaled it up to, I can't remember the user number now, but a significant amount that we were able to start getting a little bit of angel investment on and was able to secure my first um, full-time role working in a startup as the first employee. And then, yeah, grew that to something I'm pretty proud of now, which is, yeah, 20 plus employees. I think it's serving, I think, 25,000 merchants globally all across the world, including a lot of small yeah. businesses. Yeah, cool. That's exciting. And, and certainly, you know, being the first one there and see that growth, I think, yeah, is, is quite rewarding uh you know like you said i'm curious to hear though i wonder if you have any thoughts on that approach compared to what is probably the more common approach where you know you go join a big company as part of the grad program or you know you do an internship at a, a large corporate place i mean i'm interested to hear you, you've actually done you know you've gone the alternative way and done and done this like what are your thoughts now looking back do you think do you think it was better to do the way that you did in, in terms of joining a really early stage startup? Or do you think it would have been more valuable to work in a large corporate? I think it really depends on what you want. So if you have a pretty good idea of what you want to work in, I think in a corporate role or even like a tech role, whether that be like a certain silo, like marketing or product management or development, a larger corporate has these great training programs. I think a very structured way of going about it. So if you are dead set on that and you actually know like, hey, I've had friends that seem really happy in that role or maybe I've done a bit of work experience, I think that would be pretty good option. But from my perspective, I was going into this with, I just didn't want to work in finance <laughs> and I want to work in tech. I didn't even know if that was marketing. Marketing seemed to be the easiest way to get into that industry from someone who had no like study or technical knowledge, but it would be something that you could essentially teach yourself. So going into an early stage startup, I was able to do a lot. And it allowed me to actually explore what I wanted to do and like what my role and what my strengths were within a company. So things I did included actually um, doing customer support and doing product management tasks. And by the time I left SmartML, I was head of growth, which was actually more, I would say 80% product management and about only just like 20% marketing. So I was able to take that early stage experience and really experience a lot of different things within a company and I guess within tech and startups and and find something that I really enjoyed. And, and I guess the end of the thing now as a founder, I think what I really enjoyed was being at that early stage and like really that forming a company, forming a culture, forming a team, and then, yeah, going and executing. Yeah, cool. I, I, think, I think that's great. I mean, what... What do you think the unique opportunities are for people working in these early stage companies? I know that you guys sort of touched on them there. What do you think are really some of the big pros of doing that? Yeah, one, like if you don't know what you want to do, yeah, you can experiment with a lot. And I think you can be upfront. Uh, generally, if you're working on an early stage startup, you can expect a, a very high salary. But in return, I think the startup themselves, if they are a good startup, they should give you an amazing learning experience, experience and the flexibility to do um, what you want and explore different sectors of that company. So being really upfront and saying, hey, either I don't know what to do or 
these are the things I want to experiment with or try my hand at. And then usually if the startup is open to it, they'll give you small opportunities in that space. And I, I think also just making an impact. I, when you're starting at zero, adding one or two customers makes a huge impact. But if you're working for a billion dollar company or like, like a traditional company that's been around for 50 years, your day-to-day impact, while it might be felt within your team, it's very hard to see it on a company's mm-hmm. wide scale, where as a startup, you really see that every single day. And especially at a um, really early stage startup that has zero customers, because every mm-hmm. one of those customers that signs up, it's like a little party in the office because you're just getting started and you're just starting that like flywheel towards adoption. Yeah, that's great. That early stage vibes almost that you're describing. I think that's hard to beat, and you know, and I think definitely uh, it's exciting. It's exciting when you're around that uh, and when you're growing and when you're, when you're doing stuff. What do you think, like, what do you think people undervalue about working at a company that's in these early stages? Because often people will say, you know, oh, it's so risky, like working, like you're the first employee, like what if it goes bad, like. You know, at least you know. Why would I do that when I can join a and mm. be much more stable? There's a, there's less risk if I'm joining a company that's got like stable revenues and things like that. Yeah, but what do you think people undervalue about about working at an early stage? I think they undervalue one just their opportunity and that their time first. Like, go in a graduate role, you're really young. Like now, I've been outside of uni for six to seven years. And yeah, taking that risk early on, I, I think is, if you're going to do it, you should do it then. I wouldn't recommend mm-hmm. doing it at my age. Uh, of course, now I'm starting a company, so that, that maybe <laughs> is even crazier. But yeah, it's a lot harder to take the older you get. You have family commitments, you have a mortgage, or you might have rent, like a higher rent or just a higher standard of living from working at a corporate for a long time. So that decision gets harder um, to make. And I think the best time to do it is when you're really young, when maybe you're still living at your parents' house or all your friends are still not making that much money and you're going out to the cheapest place to eat on the weekend. So it doesn't really matter if you're making a low salary. So mm. I, I think people just undervalue like the yeah the opportunity and, and the time in their careers where they're able to make this decision. It's, I think, from a rational perspective, when you are 21, 22, maybe up to 23, that that is a time you can make it. And if the startup goes pear-shaped, like you've gotten a lot of experience, you've hopefully learned, had a better idea of what you want to do, and you've actually made an impact at a company um, that, and you can show to get your next job and say, like, this is what I did, and this is the result that it, that it created. Where it's really hard to show that in a big corporate because you don't know what the end result of that whole corporate strategy is. Or sometimes you might spend six, seven months doing it and it didn't result in anything and didn't even get launched, right? Because of all the bureaucracy. So mm-hmm. I think it gives you like really uh, valuable resume building skill or resume building I don't know, notches on, on uh, uh, I'm not sure what the term is, but uh, that you can take throughout your career and that'll be valuable mm. um, in the next role. And, and it's a super competitive, sorry, it, it's a super yeah, competitive market for um, employers, actually. Like it's really hard to find skilled employees these days. So if, if the startup you join does go pear-shaped from the year, I don't think the market's going to change where you'll have a far, hard time finding another job. Yeah, there's a lot of roles mm. around. True. 
true. No, it's, it's a good time to be a graduate. Mm. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> As, like people are starting their careers now, you know, often in remote locations, often, you know, away from their, the people perhaps as a distributed, you know, workforce where everyone's everywhere. You know, is that the case for your company at the moment? Are you guys like in person at all? Are you, are you pretty, pretty Yeah, we have a hot desk space here in Melbourne. So me and our current marketing intern are working there, but... Yeah, the goal with Minky is to never have an HQ. We want to be global from day one in how we market our product and how we our product is available. And that's the same for our company. Uh, we hire everyone um, regardless of where they live. We don't even consider um, the time zones. We've learned to work asynchronously in our past roles. So yeah, right now we have eight of us and that's spread across Australia, Portugal, the UK, Japan, and Brazil. And it seems crazy, I guess, from different time zones. And sometimes it does require flexibility, but actually mm. at SmartML, we were remote from day one as well. The two co-founders um, were in Melbourne and Adelaide. It's a bit different than different countries, but in a way that's the only way I know how to work. Yeah, I think I couldn't imagine myself not working like that. Yeah, yeah. how do you guys actually structure like the asynchronous nature of that because you know often in sort of traditional agile or whatever style of working you use you know you have some kind of meetings where everyone's there <laughs> right um, so how does it work then like how like what approaches do you take that are different from that to make sure that everyone's kind of all, all being across everything yeah so we do have all hands so i guess the times that you actually can all get onto a zoom call or google meet that is super valuable. And so you have to use it valuably and be really deliberate about what you're going to use that time for. So we have one all hands meeting once a week where we kind of go through company updates, sometimes give each person, individual person will give an update or uh, an individual person might just present on something that they need to share with the team. But then day to day, it relies on a lot of tools to get it done. So Slack is the big one. So just having like, instant messaging style chat that easily communicate with your teammates but that isn't the only tool you need the one that's come up recently in the last few years is loom so that allows you to take screen recordings with your face so you can actually talk through things and that's something that's only been around the last two years but working remote for the last six years i, I can't even imagine how i used to work without it anymore <laughs> uh, it's just mm a must have in your toolkit because you can actually take the time and walk through things um, and exactly how you're doing it and give it a personal touch as well because your face is on the screen and mm. and then hand it off to the next person for when they start the day and it's really cool because you actually kind of feel like the company never sleeps it's not like a business that closes uh, opens at nine and closes at five uh, it seems like the company is always getting stuff done at every time at every time of day and it makes it feel like it's moving really fast yeah that's cool I, mean, I've actually, I haven't really used loom a lot but yeah, yeah. i've heard good things about mm. it as well so i might have to yeah. just test it out how do you go about then you know you've got the one all hands every week how do you go about like company culture and things like that because it's something that's a little bit you know is it more difficult you know when you're not in person then yeah, it is. And I think it's a really good thing that graduates should be aware of, but because 
I think everyone wants to go out of uni and then go to like a big corporate. And one of the good things about working at a corporate is there's a lot of people your own age and you can make a lot of friends there and you can kind of be part of this culture. And it's really hard to do in a remote environment where you just don't have that. So I think the remote companies that are doing it best have been doing it for a long time, whether that be Basecamp, Loom is another version, uh, Zapier, GitLab. So while almost everyone is doing some version of remote since COVID, there have actually been these really superstar companies that have reached billion dollar valuations that have been doing it since this, their company birth. So one, I guess, picking a company that it's actually done it for a while because it it's hard to get right and it actually really depends on your team and culture and like the people within it because some people might really like meetings or some company cultures might not and working with people that have done it before and know how to actually understand like understand that and to tailor that remote experience exactly for that culture and team i I think is really important and i think that's something that me and my co-founder marcos are really good at because it's the same situation at smartml so yeah, we have these all hands, but we do other things as well. So for example, we have our public launch for the app next week. So we're doing a launch party and we're doing it because the team is still pretty new. Like me and Marcus just started working on it, I guess, in August last year. First pull request was in September. So while we've had whenever a new person's joined, they've had an intro to kind of introduce themselves as a person, not just an employee. Uh, we haven't really got the chance to like fully meet everyone in a, in a sense so we're doing things like trivia so um, you can kind of do a trivia on yourself or kind of on your country because people are in different places that people can learn mm. about from where you're from and just like coffee meetups too so um either booking in an extra time or maybe like every third or fourth time when we're supposed to do stand-up just skip it say hey put a message on slack on what you're working on and we're going to spend the time just like going into small breakout rooms of two or three people and just talk about things that aren't work and yeah if it's late for you maybe have a beer or if it's early maybe it's a coffee instead yeah yeah <laughs> yeah cool no I, th- I think certainly you need those you know you, you can't just take the in-person work environment and put it online and expect everything to still work well. So I definitely think like you guys have done, you need those certain things to be different. Like, you know, you need to be making time to catch up with colleagues or, you know, doing those extra things that you wouldn't have to do if you were in person. Yeah. And I think there still needs to be a physical element as well. At SmartML, we had, I think throughout my time there, there was three retreats. So we had gone on one dev retreat to Lithuania, an all team retreat to Portugal. And then during COVID, we couldn't attend in Melbourne, but we had done like mini retreats, uh, one in Cyprus for the European team and another one in Rio uh, in Brazil for like the South American and North American team. And these in-person events while they're not that often so generally maybe once or twice a year are really important because one thing you don't get on slack is really someone's tone of voice so Mm. starting a startup and being in high growth and having like sometimes really demanding conditions sometimes things can get heated it's just the reality and not understanding someone's tone can make you misunderstand a situation and and their intent Mm. of how they're saying things but once you actually meet that person um, in real life, you get an idea of how they talk and you can kind of hear their voice when you see them on Slack as well, or when they send a message on Slack. So I think it's yeah, super important thing as well. And it's our aim to, yeah, as we grow this year, have an in-person meetup for Minky as well. And you can do it in small 
in small bits too. So if you have your dev team, say all in Europe, and maybe your marketing team is all in the US, you can do one all team retreat um, once a year in one location. And then sometime during the year, just the dev team can meet up in Europe and just the marketing team can meet up, say somewhere mm. in, in Canada. Um, and it's possible. And I think sometimes companies will say, oh, it's really expensive, but office space is really expensive. And we found that if you run things efficiently, especially when you're early stage and people are okay being a little bit more comfy, maybe sharing all the same Airbnb in mm. the, where there might only be two bathrooms for 10 people, which <laughs> is uh, you could only do it if you're a close knit team. Uh, mm. it, it doesn't cost that much. Like, it might cost 20 to 25,000 AUD to run a tr retreat and get everybody in one location. And that is usually how much you're going to spend even less than what you're going to spend actually on an office space in Melbourne for the year. Thanks for listening to this episode of Graduate Theory. If you haven't already subscribed to the Graduate Theory newsletter, you can do so via the links in the show notes. The Graduate Theory newsletter comes out every single Tuesday morning with my thoughts and lessons from each episode. But without further ado, let's get back into it. Yeah, that's cool. It's certainly, it's it's really interesting seeing the different innovations and things like that that have come from you know, the remote uh, <laughs> yeah. the really explosion almost in remote work over the last few years. Do you think people like, you know, you, you've said there, you know, the in-person element will, you sort of need that in some ways and you're keen to have retreats and, and meetups and, and that kind of stuff. Do you think the, the future of work is this kind of mode where we're saying we catch up like once a year or a couple of times a year and outside of that we're, we're remote or do you think it's going to come back to Let's have the team in the same city and then we'll just, yeah, we'll just work together um, on, on all the problems. What do you think? I, I think it depends on the business. For sure, in tech, I think that's generally the trend. I think if you want to scale globally, it's really hard to do it just from one location. It, it's an advantage having people from different cultures and different locations and different mindsets and different experiences that can actually bring that value to your team. And I think the teams that do it are going to be the ones that scale the fastest uh, and scale the most efficiently too. Because mm. yeah, at SmartMail, we always aim, actually, no, uh, sorry, at Minky, we always aim to kind of do location-based pricing. So while salaries might be very high in San Francisco or even Australia, we don't pay those salaries for remote employees, but we always aim to pay them at least above the market rate that they might get paid in Brazil or Chile, uh, but it's still much lower than Australia. But the talent, like talent is evenly distributed just because someone's in Chile or um, Brazil, that doesn't mean they're less skilled um, or less talented than someone in Australia. Um, they just haven't been given the same opportunities. And if we can get three of those extremely skilled people in Brazil for the price of one in Australia, I think, and you actually have these structures in place where you're building a remote company, I think we're the ones that are going to be more competitive in the long run. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. It's very interesting and it'll be interesting to see uh, over the next few years how that kind of, you know, the talent that's almost hasn't had access to opportunities or things like that, them now getting access to remote companies really that don't really care where you are. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in sort of the global labor market, really. Yeah, I'm really excited mm -hmm. to see it as well because we've been hiring me and Marcus have been hiring remotely now for six years. We always kind of manage the hiring at SmartML as well. 
And actually to see the shift in the market too, like before when we started, there was, you find a lot of devs throughout Asia, but now that's very much shifting west, if you go that way. So Africa is a huge market, especially Nigeria um, and Lagos, like it's become a huge tech scene there. And it's just ex exploded with like really quality candidates as some of these bigger companies have come in and, and trained people in those areas. And, and same with Latin America, it's like this huge fintech hub where um, because the banks there might not be so trustworthy. There's this huge um, explosion of local payment operators that have, or local neobanks that people have worked for and really worked for them at like massive scale. If you consider how big like countries like Brazil are in terms of population. And now they are able to work for companies like Minky or even like companies like Revolut or big, bigger fintechs and take that skill um, and experience, which is actually very valuable and very hard to find in a market like Australia Yeah, and help our companies grow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it almost goes both ways, doesn't it? With like companies now getting access to better talent at probably cheaper than they would have before, especially ones that are you know, Western, you know, mm. typically like Australia and US, things like that. And then also people are able to access opportunities that they previously weren't able to access. So it's really a, it's a win-win for, for so many people around the world, I think, mm. this remote work. Yeah, I and, I, and I think sometimes people will think like, oh, it's just going to be people in, let's say, the global south taking our jobs. But it also opens up a lot of opportunities as well. I've, especially working in crypto, um, I have a lot of friends that are kind of working for exchanges or kind of US or Asian crypto companies. And really in APEC, it's it's a huge the market here is crazy like the amount of growth potential it has and in australia we're perfectly positioned for to serve countries like indonesia and malaysia and still like english speaking and so we can connect with these teams in the u.s so there's a lot of exciting opportunities i think coming up out for australians um in a remote perspective as well mm. yeah i think that's interesting what let's say you're you're a grad you know joining a remote first company just early career joining a remote yeah. company what is like now that you've done this for a while and you're hiring people that are you're into these kinds of roles what are some tips that you like you would give to help someone like settle in because i think it can be difficult perhaps to settle into a company that where you're not with people and then also like when you're actually working kind of what things can they do to like, you know, get involved in the company and like get to know people and kind of set themselves up well there. Yeah. One is, is like be proactive, like as much as a team that has done it before can help you with the cultural side and set up meetings for you. Realize everyone else is in the same situation, even though you're a grad and you have like hunger to meet people, even people that are mid thirties, they just mm -hmm. don't want to work all day at home and not talk to anybody. Everyone is in the same situation and they're more than up to have a chat at the end of the day, even just, yeah, knock off or like half an hour early and have a beer and just hang. Generally people are more efficient working at home, I think, or working remotely. So we, we are very flexible. We, we tell people like, Hey, if it's end of day Friday, or even just like during the week, you don't have these like water cooler chats that you'd have in a normal workplace. So yeah, just message someone on Slack and say, Hey, do you don't have a beer or do you just don't have a chat? And yeah, no one should feel any requirement to say, Oh no, then it's not five or I haven't worked eight hours yet. Yeah. 
the social yeah. aspect is part of work. And I, I think companies should be flexible in realizing that and allow yeah pe- people to be um, proactive themselves and just like go take those opportunities. Yeah, because yeah, everybody's in the same spot. We all like social interaction. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, that's cool. I, mean, I think that's important too. I think you've got to, uh, I feel like like I was remote like for, the, for, for a six month period recently. And yeah, I guess like most people weren't living in Melbourne <laughs> to some yeah. extent, right? You know, and that kind of, you know, was, was a sort of opener for that kind of stuff, to be honest. You know, where you're saying, okay, where there's no real social, like no social contact is kind of forced, right? Mm. Like if you're in the office, you're kind of just forced to be social. But when you are remote, it's, it's kind of like you said, you've got to be proactive, go out and connect with your coworkers a bit more actively so you can still have that social side to work and you're not just like, you know, ticking off the Jira thing, Jira tickets and then leaving. And it's just like a very, you know, and you're not getting involved with, with the broader mission and, and the broader. Yeah. And one thing I'd say like on the proactive bit too is, well, yeah, on the broader mission and company, it is hard to find startups that have been doing it for a while or people that have been doing it a while. Like I think Smartamail actually went through the same accelerator that Minky is going through back in 2017. And we were the only remote company then and everyone thought we were crazy. And they were asking us like, how do you do it? And now three years later, or actually no, five years later, there's a lot of remote companies in our cohort. But mm. even then, like as founders, sometimes it's it's really hard to do this culture while building a high growth startup. So Actually, yeah, read like some books like the Basecamp guys, um, like DHH and Jason Freed. They've wrote, written a book called, I think it's Remote OK, or yeah, there's a few like company culture and building a remote company. But, but actually just reading those yourself and, and trying to implement those within the team. And if you f- feel like, hey, this company isn't doing something, just, just reach out. Like everyone mm. generally at a startup wants to make a, be- a great working experience for everyone there. Yeah, no, I agree with it. Those would be get good resources mm. for people listening that are interested. Yeah. And perhaps you don't even have to, uh, you know, have a company to to have those. You could just yeah. start doing them within your team or mm. whatever it might be. We're remote, so that's really useful. I'll uh, go add them to my Goodreads yeah. <laughs> after the show today. <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about about yourself and and what you're working on. So, Minky is a, a DeFi app. Could you just give us a bit more information about what exactly you are working on? What is what is the product? What benefits can we can we gain for for using it? Yeah, definitely. So with Minky, we're aiming to be the easiest way to save, earn, and invest with DeFi on mobile. And the product itself is a Web3 wallet. So similar to something like MetaMask that you might have used to buy your first NFT the last few years. But it's designed to look and feel like your favorite fintech. So whether that be Revolut, if you're in the UK or globally, or I guess up banking is the popular one for young, young people in Australia. So rather than having a lot of this really like crypto native language and jargon, we actually take a view that, hey, let's look at something like up banking and totally power it with crypto and DeFi instead. And the benefit of doing that in like a decentralized way, we actually give people direct access to these lending and borrowing protocols. So with Minky, you can save on protocols like Aave and Mstable, which last year had a variable rate uh, on average of 8%, which I think is 40 times higher than your bank. And even this year, it's trending given the macro economic situation with um, Russia and the Ukraine. So it's trending a bit lower as less people want to take on leverage. But yeah, you can still save near 3 to 5%, which, yeah, 
10, 20 times higher um, than your bank. And it's a really great way to save because if you're putting your money in a savings account, given what inflation is really, um, your money is going backwards. I've been a, a bit more of a technical question for you. But yeah. How, because like, I, I don't know a great deal about how this works. So how is it possible that you can like how does the yield work then? Like, where is this the yield yeah. coming from in these situations, and why is it so high compared to like uh, traditional? Yeah, so so we give access to these lending and borrowing protocols that essentially work like peer to peer lending. So, like a bank would take your savings and lend it out to borrowers. You're doing the same, but instead of a bank with a huge building and 100,000 plus employees, all it is is a smart contract that enables this. So your money goes into a pool and then lenders can borrow from that pool. So the reason why it's higher, like one is just efficiency. You don't have to have this whole like compliance and infrastructure and I guess like physical infrastructure of a banking operation. But two is also the price that people are willing to pay for money or borrowing in the crypto sphere. Because when people are borrowing are generally looking for leverage to either buy more crypto or usually buy more crypto. So what they're doing is they usually have Ethereum or maybe some Bitcoin in the form of wrapped Bitcoin. And they don't, they want to don't want to sell it so they can deposit it into these protocols as collateral and say they can put a thousand dollars of Bitcoin in and they can borrow um, $500 of your US dollar savings and they can either use that to get some liquidity and buy some new boots or they can yeah use that to buy more Bitcoin and get more leverage. Mm. And, and how does it work yeah. then with like perhaps someone yeah, it takes a loan out of this pool, but then they're like, they're unable to pay back, like as a, maybe they default on that loan. How does it work? How does that all work with, with this? Yeah. Oh yeah. I guess I forgot a tip point on one aspect too. So the reason it is higher is because the people that are borrowing, um, they are essentially wholesale debanked from traditional finance. Like if you're a crypto company, it's really hard to get a bank account. Even for us, we're really lucky to get one. I won't name which one um, because I don't want them to kick me off because <laughs> the other three were unsuccessful. But it, the same goes for borrowing and lending. So because it's so hard to get liquidity then or yeah, leverage, um, crypto companies are willing to pay more for it. So whereas you can maybe get a mortgage for 3%. Mm -hmm. As a crypto company, you can't borrow at those same, same rates that traditional finance is borrowing at. So mm -hmm. that's why it's near like, yeah, 8 9%, for example. And yeah, so, and if you are unable to pay your loan, that's all automated. It's based on your collateral. So if your collateral, because everything is over collateralized. So if you want to borrow $500, you actually have to put in $1,000 worth of collateral. But if, say, the price of Bitcoin, which is your collateral, drops um, and reaches a certain point where, say, your collateral isn't worth as much as the loan, then that collateral will actually get automatically sold back into the market. So it'll go up for sale and 50% of that can be bought by people who want to buy Bitcoin and it's sold at a bit of a discount too. So they have some arbitrage opportunity. So I think it's a 6% discount compared to whatever the market price is. And then, yeah, you could they can buy your collateral and then now uh that will be used to repay back your loan and then your mm -hmm. loan will, again will be in good standing because some of your collateral was sold to pay that back cool all right that sounds good perhaps i'll put my savings for a house in crypto instead um <laughs> but maybe not maybe yeah. it's not a safe yeah Who knows? It, maybe it, one day it, it's 
it actually is safe in, in the sense that these protocols are really battle tested. To put it in perspective right now, both Aave and Compound, which are the two lending and borrowing protocols, have over $20 billion locked in them, US, which if you just look at assets held by a bank, would put them in um, the top 100 banks in the US, which they've only really come to prominence in the last two and a half years. And they've only been created five years ago, which is crazy when you consider that some of the banks that have been around have been around since like the beginning of time, like more longer than even we, we've been alive for since we can remember. And, and it's really the first, I would say, worthy competitor to traditional finance. So if you look at the last 20 years, you've had I guess the traditional world and traditional companies completely flipped on its head by tech. Like the biggest companies used to be ExxonMobil, but now they're Amazon, Apple, uh, Microsoft. It's everything's tech. But if you look at the biggest banks, um, the largest banks in the US in the 1970s are still the largest yeah. banks today. And in Australia, it's probably since banking existed that the largest okay. banks are more Combank and ANZ. So that hasn't changed by tech. And it's they're really these legacy institutions that are so ingrained um, in our day-to-day -day lives. But now you have this solution that is so much better because of the efficiency that you have get, have with these like smart contract applications that I think yeah, if, if $20 billion was to be lost, that would be, be a very horrible for DeFi. But I think it also shows like how battle tested these protocols are because if it's been two and a half years um, and these have gone from in that time, like $1 billion locked in all DeFi together to over $100 billion locked if people haven't been able to get that piece of the pie in these like mega protocols, they're obviously doing something right. Yeah, you're right, spot on. And, and speaking of, you know, Web3, where I'd love to talk to you, you know, you're obviously you the founder of this company, you're looking to hire people in to work in, in your company. Tell us about what it's like hiring in today's day and age as a web company. Yeah, it's really fun because it kind of reminds me of myself when I, I first got my first role at Smartmail, essentially having no real marketing experience um, or a marketing background. And Web3 is this new industry where I think there's a program at RMIT, but it's very early stage. Like no one has studied Web3 or crypto and nobody that is generally breaking in. There are some, I guess people know, we've kind of been really building on it for five years. There's people moving between roles, but I would say the vast majority of people that are in, like getting a job are, are in crypto for the first time. So yeah, it, it's fun from that perspective. And yeah, I think I, I just enjoy like people like r rushing into an industry that I'm really passionate about, but also that they're really passionate about too. Like on our first marketing role that we hired for our marketing lead, um, that was, I think, the first role we advertised for. Nobody really knew about us. And we had over 250 applicants hiring in Web2. If we got that, they'd be like, wow, this is amazing. Like you would have had to spend thousands of dollars on job ads to generate that. But in crypto and Web3, there's this huge rush of people that are wanting to get into it. And then, yeah, it's good. For, it's a blessing for us as a company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's that's certainly cool. And I mean, I'm curious to dive in more about this and the, you know the amount of people that apply. I mean, how can you and you're, you're like you know Web three in itself is is relatively new, yeah, a new space, right? So you've probably gone through this mm. yourself. But how do you go about learning about these things in, in terms of 
perhaps someone wants a role at a Web3 company and really differentiating themselves from the, you know, the masses <laughs> that want to get into this field. Like, what can you do to, to say, okay, I'm actually, I, re I actually know what I'm doing in, in this area. I mean, is there anything that you could do, you know, in the lead up to apply for these positions? To, to do yeah. That? One is actually like, make your learning journey really public. I, um, be intentional and say, Hey, I'm learning about this. And maybe I'm writing a blog or I'm writing some LinkedIn posts about what I'm learning and maybe what are the new things every day. It doesn't need to be completely right, but it's good to see, I guess, from a hiring perspective, someone going down that rabbit hole and like, yeah, seeing their curiosity and also their writing skills, which I think being in an industry that is very, very technical focus and has come from like really like developer and like crypto native focus. It's hard to explain what we do to everyday people and to make it um, approachable and transparent for them. And writing is such a like important skill to, for us as companies to, to acquire. So just being public about your learning journey, if you're thinking of getting into web three and you're researching it yourself, just write about it. And when you apply for a job, share, share it. Even if you might be a little bit embarrassed about it because you're new to it. We really like seeing people who've done that and have gone down the rabbit hole, just like we did five, six years ago. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I think, I think, it, I think it's important, right? Especially something like web three, where the, it's, it's not like you, there's much barrier to, to learning. Like you can get quite active in the space, uh, and learn everything there is to know you know it's not like a a field that's been established for a while like like finance for example where going deep into it you, know, you could go down any number of rabbit holes like endlessly whereas you know crypto is still this early thing where you can become reasonably knowledgeable quite fast uh, if you if you're willing to sort of mm. get stuck in and, and and dive into the communities and the tech and, and things like that yeah and i'd say one thing too is just use the actual tools um, because the nature of the blockchain is that it's public. Not only can you write about it, but we can actually, as the hirers, we can actually see like a lot of the common trend now on Twitter is to mm. have your .eth in your Twitter name. Uh, we can actually look yeah. at your .eth and see like, this is what you've been buying. This is what you've been transacting with. This is the tools that are that you're using. It's a bit harder now, like compared to when I started. Um, gas fees which are the transaction fees on ethereum were a lot lower because there wasn't as much volume on the network so you might be spending like a few dollars to make a transaction whereas now sometimes to buy an nft or uh, make a DeFi transaction on ethereum mainnet it could be up to a hundred dollars which if you're a graduate that would be some pretty prohibitive to actually use the tool mm. but what there is now are layer two networks which essentially maintain the security of ethereum but they allow you to transact at much higher speeds and lower transaction costs so you can actually go um and use a lot of these same um, protocols in DeFi or even buy nfts on things like optimism arbitrum and polygon and for us when we're hiring we actually look at that we don't just look at etherscan which is kind of ethereum we actually look at all the different chains which one you're on and even if it's on like say binance chain or something that might not be as like decentralized as we like and maybe isn't so popular in the old og crypto sphere it's good to see like people actually use the tools and understand and and they're just going on the journey mm. because yeah going on the journey and down the rabbit hole i think is the most fun part and yeah we're happy to help people get to the point where we are too yeah great i, I think that's really cool i've got a, 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 you know one more question mm. to ask you today 
around you know your career and the things you've done and we've had a really interesting chat today but people starting their career this year do you have any advice for graduates as they go into this world of you know crypto remote work all these kind of new trends that are coming up yeah, I think I'll heavily push for crypto. I think it's very much the future. The amount of talent rushing into this industry is simply like unfathomable. Uh, it, coming from like a Web2 world for my full-time job just over a year ago and now to like back, really be back into it and working and hiring and experimenting in this industry, it's crazy. When me and Marcus actually started the company, we said like, this actually might be our last chance to be early and really <laughs> de define what our vision for what we want this industry um, and this space to look like. And that was actually the same thing for joining an early stage startup. I, I had very like strong beliefs on how what work should be like and how you should run a team um, from like reading books and talking to friends um, and what what company culture should be like and I think I still have those strong beliefs about work but also like what I think the future of web3 and crypto and the internet should be and I think if people do have these like morals and beliefs and you want to apply them to this industry yeah it, it sounds maybe a bit crazy, but I actually think it's the last time, these next three to five years uh, will be the time when you can actually make an impact and actually spread your morals um, and, and beliefs at a scale um, where they're impactful to hopefully like millions and billions of people. Right. Yeah. Well, there it is, everyone. You're, you're cool. <laughs> to yeah. get into Web3, I think it's a fascinating space and certainly an area that, has, like you said, has a lot of talent uh, going in that direction there's a lot of you know new things there happening every single day so it's uh, and it's probably going to be that way for yeah. a while to come so certainly yeah you know, I, I absolutely agree with you josh thanks so much for, for coming on today and sharing your wisdom it's been very interesting for myself to hear your thoughts on on these different topics if people want to find out more about yourself and what you're working on after this conversation where is the best place for them to go? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Vansity Reyes. So it's like Vansity Reynolds. I think it's Ryan Reynolds, his Twitter handle in Vancouver. So yeah, like Vancouver is from Vansity. So yeah, on Twitter, uh, or you could just yeah find us on uh, minky.app. So M-I-N-K-E dot app. I assume it'll be in the show notes as well. Yep. So uh, jump on the site. You can probably send a support ticket if you want to chat to me. Yeah, more than happy to chat or point you on your way. Fantastic. Well, yeah, thanks again, Josh. It's been a great chat today. And yeah, we'll speak soon. Cool. Thanks, James. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to get my takeaways, the things that I learned from this episode, please go to graduatetheory.com slash subscribe, where you can get my takeaways and all the information about each episode straight to your inbox. Thanks so much for listening again today, and we're looking forward to seeing you next week.